Presented by MisfitsAudio.com Adventure awaits. I am Creeperella, your host for this year's frightening campfire tales. Come, sit by my fire and warm yourselves for chilling horn. Hey, nice campfire. Why, thank you, zombie. Oh no, it's the cake cult leader. Run, run! Still here, dear listeners? Prepare yourselves for our first tale, where anything can show up at your doorstep. Listen to Pamela K. Kinney's Give Me Something Good to Eat. Read by Bill Holweg. Trick or treat, smell my feet, give me something good to eat. Halloween time again. When all those kids knocked on his door and asked, no, demanded, candy, money, and other assorted treats. But he'd never break down and give the little fiendish brats anything. In his opinion, these days the only thing they deserved was nothing. Nothing at all. The knocking at his door escalated, becoming a persistent pounding. Jonas Perkins flung open the door and found two small children, maybe five or six, standing on his porch. One dressed as a witch, the other a power ranger. Their loud, obnoxious father, Pete Quarters from next door, had been the one who pounded on the door. He inched closer so that Jonas and he stood practically nose to nose. Hey, Perkins, said Quarters. Didn't you hear Jenny Parker knock? It's Halloween, you know. Jonas snorted and glared at Quarters from under his bushy eyebrows. Yeah, I heard, but I decided not to give out candy to any kids this year. I thought the Dental Association would have one less idiot handing out sugar products and causing cavities. Felt it was my civic duty. Quarters' piggish eyes narrowed. Are you going highbrow on me, Perkins? It's Halloween. I'm sure my kid's dentist won't mind them having some candy. I should know, as he gave them a couple Snickers bars each when we stopped at his place. So why should he care if you give them something? Well, I didn't get any candy, so I am not giving them, or any other little monster, anything tonight. And that's that. So no one better play a trick on me either, or I'll call the cops. Understand? Jonas slammed the door shut on Quarters and his kids, locking it. Stupid idiots in their brats, he muttered as he stalked into the living room and thumped down in his favorite chair in front of the television set. Picking up the remote, he surfed through endless channel after channel, but could only find monster movies. How to make Halloween treats on the cooking channel and the history of Halloween on the history channel. The apples have come from with a click, he turned the TV off and tossed the remote onto the end table with disgust. <sighs> nothing but Halloween junk on tonight. And nothing but Halloween junk to his thinking as, as the doorbell kept ringing and he answered it. Kids dressed in costumes of all types, from vampires and werewolves to ghosts, superheroes, and silly princesses stood with their bags held up. The light spilling onto their master-made-up faces. 
Their parents waited just outside the reach of the porch light, hidden in the shadows of the night. He screamed at the little monsters, making them run, and their mothers or fathers Oi, curse him. But he had just slammed the doors on them all. After a while, he sat in the darkened living room, ignoring the persistent bell. Finally, the doorbell quit ringing, and he relaxed in his chair. He jumped up when instead of a bell, a ringing loud knocking sounded at his door. At first, he felt a flash of anger and wasn't going to answer the door. But when he spied something on a table near him, a nasty grin shaped his lips. He picked up a horn he kept to bugle at birds in the spring that, that tried to get the grass seed that he seeded his front lawn with. Now, with his fingers curled around the horn, he strolled to the door. I'll give you a treat, he yelled as he flung the door open with a laugh. <laughs> His fingers pressed the button on the horn, and a loud, high-pitched sound screamed out of it. He stopped as he faced a trick-or-treater about his height. With another press of the button, he shut off the horn. Dumbfounded at first, his face took on a dark, angry glower. Aren't you a little old to be trick-or-treating, you stupid nitwit? He snarled. The costume figure just stood there, silent. Jonas' gaze took in the costume and how well done it was. Tall and gaunt, threadbare iron-gray pants hung loosely from its hips, and it also wore a shirt rotted away in places, leaving dirt-crusted holes. Dust covered most of the clothing, and the large shoes on the feet looked like those that a clown would wear. The skin gleamed the same pale, chalky color as the crescent moon that hung in the night sky above. Long hands ended in long black nails, sharp like claws, and they grasped an extra-large bag, like the kind that held grain or seed in the grain stores. But it was the makeup job that impressed him the most. The flesh masked over the skull like a second skin. Not a speck of color touched its lips or cheeks, except a light gray color. And the eyes! They dominated the features like large black holes, with no consciousness peeping out of them. Must be FX contact lenses, thought Jonas. The lips parted in a dark smile, revealing a mouthful of cannibal sharp fangs. Jonas shivered, but not from the cool autumn breeze that drifted in from the outside. If you'll excuse me, I'm going to shut this door now, and no tricks, because you're not getting any treats from me. He slammed the door shut on the figure's face. In a turnabout, he found himself eye to eye with the strange trick-or-treater from outside. It stood there, blocking Jonas from the living room. Not one peep did it utter. What the? Jonas retreated back a couple of steps. How'd you get inside? The figure silently held up its open bag. Suddenly angry, Jonas snarled. You want a treat, do you? Well, I'll give you a treat. A treat like a smack from this horn I'm still gripping. He raised the horn up and brought it down. With no warning, the trick-or-treater grabbed the arm holding the horn and with a twist broke it. The horn dropped to the floor, making a loud clatter. The trick-or-treater kicked it to one side. Pain lanced through Jonas's arm and he cradled it. Fear flitted across his face as he stared at the other. What do you want? He said. The other spoke for the first time. You! It grabbed him quickly, not giving him time to escape, and after snapping a few bones to bend the body easier, shoved a dying Jonas into the bag. The ghoul gave a nasty cackle, 
and flung open the door, stepping outside into the cool night air. The pungent odors from the candlelit jack-o'-lanterns on doorsteps and half-eaten candies thrown to the ground from costume children wafted to his nostrils. But it didn't think of those things, oh no. Only the meal it would enjoy tonight, and its home in the mausoleum. Nowadays, Halloween made it so easy to hunt humans. They just thought of it as another costume trick-or-treater. It left the door open and skipped down the street to its home in the town cemetery. It sang, swinging the heavily loaded bag at its side. Trick or treat, smell my feet, and give me something good to eat, yeah! Scrumptious tale, wasn't it? Makes you want to go on vacation. Or not. <laughs> a lone minivan trundled along a country road. Its plates were splashed with mud, and the back piled high with assorted camping equipment. It had been a long trip, and tempers were fraying within the Naylor family. Jimmy had given up trying to steal the iPod from his sister and sat fuming, staring instead at the endless lines of trees blurring past his window. The car gave a chortle, and the father slammed his fist against the wheel. Not now, he growled as the unmistakable signs of steam escaped from under the hood in front. It had been hours since the last gas station, and they were almost out of water. Taking the first driveway that presented itself, Mr. Naylor turned down it and parked in the shade. Although not strictly necessary, the entire family piled out, desperate for fresh air. They'd been driving so long that the ground felt unsteady under their feet. Definitely a house up there. Mr. Naylor indicated a distant, sprawling mansion as the car continued to bellow and smoke behind them. What's wrong, Daddy? Jimmy asked, feeling a bit queasy from car sickness. Overheated. Who wants to come with me and ask for some water? There was a chorus of cheers, so the car was locked with a bleep bleep, and the family headed down the only path to the house. It was a strange sort of formal garden, for though the hedges and bright flowers suggested an English country estate, the plants themselves were unusual. The mother thought perhaps the owner collected exotic specimens and was a horticulturalist. It took all Mr. Naylor's courage to rap on the large brass knocker, and they half expected an indignant butler to appear. Not a sound came from the old house, and they stood for a while until trying again. It probably takes a while to get to the front door, commented Susan, the little girl. She fancied herself quite clever. More likely the owner is away on vacation, like we are, her mother mused. We could be in serious trouble without water for the van. This far out, there'll be a well. Susan continued, determined to show off. This time it worked, for the rest of the family nodded enthusiastically and split up in different directions to search for it. She, however, plopped herself down on the front steps and tried her cell phone again. But there was still no service. She tried the door, but it was locked. Then the window, with no more success. Her curiosity thus met... Susan began ambling about, until hearing a whoop from nearby. It wasn't a well, 
but Jimmy had discovered an overgrown pool. The water wasn't very clean, but it was good enough for the van, and Mr. Naylor filled up the empty container he had brought. The water bubbled, oddly, after he'd scooped up what was needed, but they figured it was only a fish. Without warning, a roar of green, slimy moisture sprang out of the pond as though it had come alive. Jimmy was pulled down instantly, and though he shrieked and splashed, the grimy muck was relentless. With a courageous leap, his mother seized Jimmy's hand and yanked him away from the pool's grasp. It gurgled, then returned to an innocent calm. Covered in pond leaves and mud, the little boy pelted back toward the car at a record speed, before falling headlong. Worried he was hurt, Mrs. Naylor ran after him and saw the trouble. Like the pond, the entire formal garden was now writhing in horror. Jimmy was entirely encased in what had been the stiff walkway hedges. Each thorny branch was now entangling him, though the little boy was putting up a valiant fight. He'd gotten his pocket knife and was slashing away. Before his mother could intervene, the large rosebush beside her glowed as it emitted a poisonous yellow vapor. Her eyes rolled up and she collapsed. Susan was leaping to and fro as the rows of cactus-like plants with long spikes lunged at her with massive, multi-pronged swords. It was a good thing she was small or quick, for if even one had hit her, she would not have survived its deadly sting. On the steps of the house, Mr. Naylor stood transfixed, unsure of what to do. He spotted a large stack of wood near the house and an axe. Hefting it up, he ran at the plants, and little by little chopped his family free. As they ran to the edge of the garden, beginning to relax, the ground in turn rose up against them. Clouds of dirt pelted at their eyes. The ground shook as cracks opened in all directions. Staggering on, dazed, hoping it was the right direction, they reached the van. It was beginning to sink into the ground, and vines were throwing themselves at it. Ripping out some creepers working their way into the engines, and daring the contaminated water, the father glugged it into the car and they jumped in. The family sat still and terrified until the van was clear of the driveway. Slowly the fear ebbed away, and Jimmy went back to his attempts after his sister's iPod, which she defended even more violently, considering the fact he was covered in slime. Nothing could have been worse than sticky fingers on Susan's pristine MP3 player. Trees breezed by the car again, and Mrs. Naylor pulled out a map to figure out when the next turnoff was. Should be the next one up ahead, she smiled. Turn left. Before driving long, a narrow lane veered off. Is that it? The father wondered. It didn't look important but most roads out in the country weren't marked. He slowed and looked down through the arch of evergreens. He could see some large buildings, which was a promising sign. Let's give it a try. The splattered van slowly bounced its way up the road, past an old lumber mill and some abandoned buildings. As they continued, it began looking more and more strange. There was a creeping, cold sort of feeling they could not explain as the road entered an entire town that was empty. 
A storefront, still with a sign, Peaches, $3 a pound, sat next to an equally quiet old motel. The road slowly dwindled into dirt, and Mr. Naylor, his jaw clenched, but trying to maintain an outer calm, turned the car around. It was even more frightening driving past the ominous ghost town on the way back, yet the road did not seem any friendlier when they turned back onto it. Honey, I don't mean to worry you, Mrs. Naylor began, which the family knew meant she was about to nag. We're almost out of gas. Irrationally frightening woods or not, being stranded without petrol was much more of a practical issue. Almost as they thought of it, the road took them round a bend and brightly colored gas station became visible. There were several cars pulled up and people milling about, so it was clearly open. Daddy? Susan looked at it, keen to prove her observational skills as well as cleverness. That's exactly like the gas station on that weird road we just took. Nonsense. Her father snapped and began pulling out his credit card. Regular? The attendant leaned down to the open driver's side window. Yeah, fill her up. Mr. Naylor nodded. Yes, master. Uh, what? Even after a hard day, it was difficult to dismiss an off-the-wall comment like that. The attendant's eyes were glassy. He moved unnaturally, almost like a puppet. The other patrons behaved in a similar way. They shuffled about, making meaningless comments. It wouldn't have made too much of an impression, only the earlier strange events augmented the situation. I... I'm almost free of the poison! The attendant suddenly shrieked. I will... I will escape! Look, just put the gas in, Mr. Naylor said, wanting to leave as soon as possible. One tank of regular, sir, cash or credit. The man snapped back to the zombie-like state that seemed to pass for normal at the gas station, and walked stiffly toward the pump before the father could answer. Just ignore it, Mrs. Naylor hissed, her eyes darting about. Within minutes, the car was ready to go. Other than the breakdown, their attendant did a perfect job, even cleaning their windows to a glistening state. When's the turnoff on Baywood Road to the west? The father asked, since clearly the map had a few things wrong. You missed it, sir. It was the stop sign half a mile back. There was no stop sign! Susan shouted irritatedly from the back seat. I would have noticed. You need to go back. We'll take our chances coming on, then, uh, bound to be another road. You need to go back, the attendant repeated. Back to the house. House? Mr. Naylor paled despite himself. How would you know about that? Back to the house. Go back. Go back! The man ended in a shriek. Not wanting to hear more, the father put the van in gear and floored it. The old vehicle roared to life and took off down the road, still with the attendants back, ringing in their ears. Shaking and now thoroughly frightened, Mr. Naylor resolutely hurtled down the road. You're speeding, Daddy, Susan put in importantly, but he paid it no heed. Several hours passed when they caught some flashes in the distance. 
As they drove closer, the noise confirmed that it was a major road full of traffic. At last! Mrs. Naylor gasped, her hand clenched on the seat rest in a death grip. Just as they were about to turn left, the road itself began to rattle. Dirt flung itself at the vehicle in the same way the path had behaved at the mansion. The clear windows were a mass of chalk and clay, and they heard plants growing over and trying to entrap the wheels and hubcaps. Revving the engine to maximum, Mr. Naylor broke free, and the van flew several feet and landed in the main road. Instantly there came a huge of angry horns and sounds of screeching tires, though fortunately no collisions. Mr. Naylor turned the wipers on to move some of the dust and rolled down his window to see. Where the blazes do you come from? A furious man in a convertible shouted, shaking his fist. The Naylors looked it out to the rutted road. There was nothing but a tangle of dark trees and no sign of it. Where's the road? Even Susan looked perplexed. It should be there. I'm not sure, Mr. Naylor replied. It's like it never existed. The family looked at each other in confusion, and had it not been for Jimmy, still head to foot in Ponce line, the entire experience would have been unbelievable. Perhaps it's still there, Susan commented, waiting for us. The next time you are driving a country lane, Perhaps feeling a little lost? Beware. With every turn, you may chance upon the road that never was. Written and read by Alexa Chipman. Perhaps, dear listeners, it would be safer to visit the relative's house. After all, what could go wrong at your uncle's? My Dog Believes in Ghosts by Paul Mannering I never believed in ghosts. Everyone says that, and then they tell you some spine-tingling tale of the unexplained and how they converted to believer status by some terrifying experience. Personally, I am still not entirely convinced, but I have a story, and if my dog could talk, I'm sure he would tell you he knows ghosts are real. I was travelling, me and my dog Crow. I called him Crow because his fur was as black as coal. He was a purebred mongrel. I could see at least four breeds in his history, German Shepherd, Doberman, Rottweiler, and Labrador. His fur was pitch black, and his paws were huge. At two years old, he was still a pup, and though he should be fully grown, he never seemed to fit his feet. He ran like a clown in floppy shoes, and sometimes tripped over his own paws. A good dog is a great friend. He was house-trained, loyal, and other than this one annoying habit of hogging the bed at night, especially in winter, when he would actually work his way under the covers and sleep with his head on the pillow, he was the light of my life. So with Crow in the front seat of my truck, his seatbelt firmly fastened, we were heading up the country. He would get bored with watching the sheep flash past and worm his way out of the seatbelt and get down on the floor. There, he would give a long, suffering sigh and go to sleep. He stopped when we reached the coast. Crow discovered seals for the first time and was beside himself with hysterical joy. 
These large, strange-smelling creatures were just like him, except without legs. Seagulls, of course, were great toys, and the dog ran himself ragged chasing them as they dived and swooped, screeching in outrage as I tossed bread crusts out onto the sand. Finally, panting and lolling, Crow flopped down exhausted in the shade of the truck. I put a towel down on the passenger seat and he slept the rest of the way, though I had to drive with the window down as wet dog smells, and wet salty dog stinks. I had an Uncle Mac with a place up that way. He lived alone out in the country. He'd been working on renovating the place for years. Originally, it was a cottage, and he had bought an old wooden building and had it trucked from the nearby town and attached it to the cottage as part of his grand expansion plans. Crow was ready for more adventures when we pulled up, and he tore off to explore as I stretched and wandered up to the front door. The yard was overgrown with blackberry, gorse, and waist-high grass. Piles of weathering lumber, gravel, and an encrusted concrete mixer under a tarp could be seen peeking out of the grass in places. Turns out Uncle Mac had gone away the day I arrived. The wax-polished, antique timber of the front door, complete with stained glass, had a note taped to the handle. Gone fishing. Back in a few days. Mac. Having been born and raised in the city, it was strange to find that the door was unlocked. The nearest neighbour was five miles away. The nearest town, ten. The house was a half mile back from the gravel road, and other than the occasional farm truck, there was no traffic. I figured Mac wouldn't mind if I stayed the night, so I went on in. Inside the place was a wild mix of half-complete renovations. Carefully restored antique woodwork, lovingly stripped, sanded and varnished to bring up the warm natural grains and patterns of the wood. And next to that, piles of soggy wallpaper shreds and ripped chunks of old plaster. The place had a mingled scent of linseed oil and dry rot. Paintbrushes, rolls of wallpaper, tins of paint and carpentry tools were everywhere. I wandered around the house. One bedroom was cluttered with coffee cups, discarded clothing and books that had been left lying open and face down like felled abstracts of birds or poorly filleted fish. Given the state of the bed, I was glad I'd brought a sleeping bag with me. Bachelorhood's finer points were clearly lost on Uncle Mac. After stowing my gear, I went to the back door and whistled for Crow. He gave a loud woof in reply and soon appeared, grinning as only a supremely pleased dog can. His flanks streaked with slobber and grass seeds as he flopped down, panting at my feet. I fetched his water dish from the car, filled it, and we sat in the sun, me drinking one of Mac's beers with Crow lapping his water dish dry beside me. We didn't do much that afternoon, just explored the yard and enjoyed the sun. Out the back was an apple orchard, not many trees, no more than a dozen, and none of the fruit on them was looking that good. Some kind of fungus infection had set into the fruit, leaving it all pitted and covered in black spots. I guess Uncle Mac didn't care much for growing apples, spraying for bugs and such. The blackberry patch behind the orchard was massive, great covering mats of long vines, heavy with thorns and berries, the sort of patch that even Br'er Rabbit would think twice about venturing into. It was a hot day, and summer was going to be grand, but there was something about the blackberry patch that just made me feel cold. I can't explain it. But as I turned and headed back to the front of the house, I could feel the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. Crow led the way. He didn't seem too keen on staying back there either. That night we lit the fire, more for novelty than need, and after dinner we watched TV. Crow curled up, just like he is now, next to my chair, 
It had been a long day, and I must have dozed off. I woke up some time later. A strange dream. I could hear Crow howling. It was dark when I woke up. The TV was off, and yet I don't remember turning it off. Crow was standing by my chair and staring at the wall. Every hair and hackle on his back was up. His teeth were bared, and I swear he was snarling. This big doofus clown of a dog was snarling and growling at a wall. I said to him, Crow, what's up, boy? Sit down, fella. But instead, he just took a step forward on stiff legs and growled even harder. It was crazy, and I guessed maybe a possum was scratching around in the roof, or a rat in the wall had gotten him wound up. But then I heard that howling again. A dog howling, and it came from a long way away. Out in the country, sound travels for miles. Hearing a dog howl on a farm a long way away did not seem that strange to me then. What brought me out of my chair was the sudden crash from the next room. A room I hadn't been into, behind a door that I hadn't opened. It was the door that led into the first of the two rooms that Uncle Mac had bought as a single building. The other building that had been delivered out here on the back of a truck, half a house, lowered onto new pilings and nailed to the end of his cottage. My heart was in my mouth and I didn't even go looking for a light switch. Something was in that room. Something had been knocked over in there. Something metal. And it sounded like dropping a handful of knives and forks on a steel tray. So with crow, hackles raised and snarling, I opened that door. The house was so warm that night. The fire had burned itself low and only the few dying embers were still glowing red in the grate. I kept telling myself that as soon as I opened the door there would be a light switch and I would turn it on and see what made that noise. I opened the door, and all the warm air in the house rushed out through the gap and swirled back icy cold, like the middle of winter, like that room had been closed up for a long time. The door swung open and showed me a room of gleaming tiles and stainless steel benches. A man in a green gown like a doctor was standing at a table with a glowing light shining down on him, and on the table lay a dog, on its back, with tubes going into its mouth, and its belly was shaved back to the skin and opened up like a bag. The doctor was digging in there with metal instruments, and I stood there in the doorway with my mouth hanging open and Crow howling and snarling beside me. The doctor looked up then, with his bloodied hands and the dog. He looked right at me. I could see the wall behind him, the stainless steel bench, the white tiles, all shining right through him in that harsh, white light. I will be with you shortly, he said, and his voice sounded like he was coming from a long way away. I just have to finish this one. I was trying to speak, trying to open my mouth to say something, anything, when a woman, as ghostly and phantasmal as the doctor at the table, came around the door. She wore a nurse's uniform, and even though she smiled, I could see her teeth. They looked sharp and not quite human. Let's get you ready for surgery. Sir, please wait outside. Crow let out a yell. It was more than a yelp, not a bark or a whine, but a scream of terror from a dog. I've never heard anything like it before or since. With his claws scrabbling on the linoleum floor, Crow slid through that doorway and into that glowing room. He was trying to back up, to twist and snap at some unseen phantom hands, but something dragged him in. I grabbed for him, and the door slammed shut in my face, pushing me back and sending the cold air billowing around me. 
crow screamed like he was seeing things that no man or dog is right to see. I tried to open the door. It wouldn't budge. I yelled and pounded, shaking the door, throwing myself against its jammed timbers, all the while hearing crow shriek and howl. The door burst open. It was dark in there, darker than night, and then BAM! Crow leapt out of that room, knocked me off my feet and ran straight into the front door. He was whining and yelping and trying to dig his way out. I grabbed his collar, didn't want him running away, and got the door open. Crow nearly pulled me off my feet and I ran with him. We bolted to the truck, jumped in and tore out of Uncle Max like we'd just robbed a bank. We hit town before I stopped. Crow was huddled down in the front passenger seat the whole time, whining and crying. I pulled up at a gas station in town, the only place open at that time of night. We weren't going back. Not to Uncle Max. I nearly jumped out of my skin when someone knocked on the window. Crow let out a howl and I clambered out of the cab. Hey pal, you okay? The gas station attendant was scruffy looking, skin dark with grease and grime. Gas, I need to fill up, I gotta get away. I stammered, not making a whole lot of sense. Yeah. The gas guy looked at me with a thoughtful expression. He went and got the gas hose and started filling the tank. While the gas was pumping, he peered into the truck. Where you been, pal? He was now looking at me with an angry look of accusation. Uh, up at Max's place. He's my uncle. You took your dog up to Max's place? The gas station guy spat on the ground. Yeah. I could feel my heart still thudding. Damn stupid fool! You don't take animals anywhere near that place! What? Why? The acid taste of fear was rising in my throat, crow's howls still echoing in my ears. That Mac got himself a deal, got himself an old building, dragged it out there and built it onto his cottage, part of a big renovation project he has going on. I nodded. I knew that. Sure. He's done a good job with it, too. Yeah. He's real handy with a hammer. You know where he got that building from? I swallowed, my throat tightening around a swelling scream. No, sir, I managed. He got the old veterinary clinic. Animal hospital. Just an old wooden building. Two rooms. Hadn't been used in years. Place shut down after the animal doc who ran it disappeared. Turns out he'd been doing more surgery than was necessary on folks' pets. Some reckon he was murdered. Never found him or his wife. The petrol pump clicked off with a sharp sound in the silence. I jumped and fumbled with cash, paying for the gas, the grease-stained man's story scraping over my raw nerves. I opened the truck door and Crow crawled up from the floor onto the passenger seat, whining and shivering. My beautiful dog. His coat, once black as ebony, had turned white as snow. That was My Dog Believes in Ghosts by Paul Mannering. Thus ends our campfire tales in this alley of horror. Special thanks to Kevin McLeod at IncomeTech.com for setting the mood with his spooky music treats. Stories are copywritten to their authors. Please do not redistribute them without express permission. Also, thanks to me, Creeperella, <laughs> from gypsyaudio.org. 
And of course, the zombie astronaut at zombieastronaut.net. I'm sure he wants some cake. Ha 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 ha!